I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Hi, I'm Chanti. And I'm Lynx, and you're listening to Muses. Enjoy the show. Hello and Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Welcome to Muses. I'm Shanti. And I'm Lynx. We are the podcast all about rock and rolls, muses, dolls, groupies, women behind the scenes, women on stage, just women in general kicking butt. Yeah. 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 Rock wives, girlfriends, women in music, women who work in music. We just, you know. It's expanded. Yeah. Quite a bit. Yeah. It's been great. Well, welcome back. 2020. Did you work on New Year's? I didn't. I, oh. I got to take it off first time in like six years, so that was really nice. I just hung out with some friends, went to my local bar. It was lovely. Oh, great. Yeah. I went to a really nice house party. There's like 12 people, you know, maybe 13 people. It was pretty relaxed and the food was incredible. And like some of my, like my brother was there, my sister-in-law. And uh, it was actually funny because, uh, and TJ was there, of course, but TJ wasn't my New Year's kiss. Who was? <laughs> my friend Laura. Aww. Yeah, yeah. She was like sitting, like standing beside me and TJ was on my other side. And I don't know, I just like, <laughs> the clock struck midnight and I turned to her and I gave her a kiss first. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. TJ didn't mind. No. He didn't mind being the second kiss in the new year. That's lovely. You know what? Friends first. Yes. Friends first. And it was Laura's party, right? Yeah. Yeah. So she deserved it. She deserved it. Yeah. Well... Happy New Year to everyone listening. This is exciting. Yeah, we're going to kick off the new year with a pretty incredible story. It's a mix between 
rock and roll women, so who are actually in the band themselves, and then we're going to talk about their muses and being muses themselves. And the musicians that we're talking about today are Anne and Nancy Wilson of Heart. Yes. Ah, they're such a kick-ass band. Every time I see them play, if you watch live videos of them, especially like back in the 70s and 80s, they're just like... They're they're incredible. One of my favorite memories actually at Massey Hall, the first time I ever got to work uh, on the main floor in the center was for Heart. So wow. I had like the best view ever. It was such a kick-ass show. Well, I certainly was watching a lot of videos. I would pause, watch a video or listen to a song and I tell you, some of the video performances brought me to tears. They're so good. I There was just one day where I was just in the back room working on this episode crying. I'm so excited to hear their story because I don't really know that much about them or their history. I'd love to learn about the magic man and yep. so forth. So this book, the uh, episode is based on the memoir Kicking and Dreaming, A Story of Heart, Soul, and Rock and Roll by Anne and Nancy Wilson with Charles R. Cross. Cross. Nice. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I just found the book at a used bookstore and I wasn't even really looking for much, but they have a pretty cool music section. And I saw it and I went, that's the next episode. I've got to learn about this band. You picked a good one to start the new year for sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, these women faced issues at every turn, right? Of course. Yeah. They were judged on their gender you know not their music for years and years and years by like you know huge publications rolling stone Mm -hmm. um and they've always and they say like kind of at the beginning they've always dreaded the question what is it like being a woman in rock yeah when did you know women could rock Uh. (laughs) yeah and you know they began playing music because they loved it yeah and if they would have known how difficult it would be to be women in rock fronting a band, you know, Nancy says maybe that would have stopped them. But probably not. Yeah, they're kick-ass. But I can't imagine. I actually can't imagine, though, like every interview basically being the same. Yeah, just constantly talking about your gender. It is kind of crazy. Right. And then like every article written about you just having something to do with sex. Yeah. Yeah. Frustrating. So we... Uh, for one of our photos, we did. We did. Heart Streamboat Annie. That's right. And it's, you know, interesting now to think, now that I know more about them, like which Wilson sister I posed as, which Wilson sister you posed as. Ooh. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. And that was such a fun photo shoot. I, oh, yeah. I love that one. I love recreating photo shoots with you. And I really enjoyed our Dreamboat Annie photo shoot. So we'll for sure add that to our photos on Instagram. Yes. And we'll have to do a new photo shoot this year. Yes. Who is it going to be? Okay, it has to be a duo. So if you guys have any, have any recommendations of a, a very iconic shot that people recognize right away, doesn't matter if it's guys, girls, whatever, yeah, let us know and we're going to try and recreate it. Yeah. Well, we recreated the Dreamboat Annie uh, album cover. That was Hart's first album. Should we start off with a little bit of Dreamboat Annie? Please, let's do it. Okay, here it is. Heading out this morning into the sun Riding on the dark 
right, now that you've listened to a little bit and getting excited, let's go back. And so let's bring you through the history of the Wilson family and the Wilson sisters. Great. So the Wilson family is originally from Cornwallis, Oregon, where their ancestors helped establish Oregon State University. Their father went there majoring in education and English, and he would eventually go on to have a a successful career as a high school teacher, but for many years before that, he was a Marine. Yeah. Their father, John Wilson, had spent his childhood in places like the Philippines and Taiwan because his father was also in the Marines. This traveling lifestyle would be something that the Wilson sisters would become very accustomed to. Oh, yeah. Almost like a foreshadowing to their touring years. Always on the move. Well, they're equipped for it then. Yep. Their father, John, was a tall, six foot three, good looking, smart, gentle, and kind man with a peaceful soul. They always considered him their number one fan, just like our dads. Yeah. And even after decades of being a successful rock band, it was his opinion that mattered most to Anne and Nancy. Aww. In school, John took a choir, which is where he met Lois Mary Dustin, their mother, who would become Mrs. Wilson. She was called Lou by those close to her, and she was five foot two and a blonde firebrand, they called her. Hmm. Nancy inherited her fair hair, while Anne more closely resembled her father with that dark kind of look. Lou was intellectual and enrolled in the college to study home economics. Interesting. Kind of what a lot of women did did in the 40s. Yep. The couple shared a sense of humor, appreciation of sarcasm, and a deep underlying commitment. Mm -hmm. This was a very stable marriage, and they stayed together until death do they part. Wow. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. With John being in the Marines, Lou felt like she was marrying a knight, you know, once he proposed to her. Back in those days, there was a very good possibility that a marriage could mean quick widowhood, which is really dark. I mean, this is 1944. Can you imagine that? Yeah, that's crazy. Lou was very much into the gone with the wind fairy tale kind of wedding. And this would later inform Anne's lyrics and may, you know, have been how she first learned about love was through her mom's obsession with that kind of a love story. Makes sense. Yeah. This is a really interesting story because the Wilson sisters will go on to have many fascinating muses. You know, one being their father as the absent soldier. You know, there's a romanticism in absence, which the real thing can't compare to. And this too is a vision of love that Anne learned from. Makes sense. John and Lou would have three daughters. So Anne and Nancy have an older sister named Lynn. Lynn is the eldest. She was born in 1946, followed by Anne in 1950, then Nancy in 1954. So there's four years separating each girl. Hmm. At family gatherings on Lou's side, there was always music, and they called them the family hoot nannies when they got together. (laughs) Sounds like fun. Anytime they were in the car, they sang, and like you just said, exactly, you nailed it. Music was fun for them. Yeah. It was always present, and it was associated with fun. The family moved to Taiwan because that's where John, or Dotes as they called him, they were very big on nicknames, was stationed, and they lived there for three years. They grew up playing with cameras, recording themselves, and hemming it up. Nancy was the shyer child, the youngest, and Anne was a total middle child, like me, um, shoving people out of the way to be seen. <laughs> so they were like little amateur filmmakers. 
With all of the traveling, it was hard for the sisters to make real, lasting friendships, and so they became as close as could be. After Taiwan, the family settled in Bellevue, Washington, and rented a blue two-story colonial. It had a front yard, a backyard, and it felt like a real home where Anne and Nancy would listen to the radio, new rock and roll hits, and they were pretty young when they were, like, really into, began, you know, loving music. Anne was entering grade five, and Nancy only grade one. Wow. Yeah. Anne had a difficult time in school, as she was larger than most of her classmates. I guess, yeah. In that day and age, too, that wasn't as common as it is now. Children being larger, you yeah. mean? Mm. Well, I think because Nancy had inherited more of her mother's genes, it seems that Anne had, like, the father's side of the family, too. Just, you know, big bone, just naturally yeah. a little bit heavier. and Yeah. So she would have to buy her clothes at a store. And this is an actual name of a store. Chubbet. No. Yeah. She would like go on to have issues with self-esteem regarding this and her weight for years. No wonder. And oh my God. Of course, being in the public eye is no help to yeah. that. Being a woman yeah. in rock and roll. And uh, yeah, so when she was little, she would always be afraid that her tag for Chubbet would be Aww. showing. And Aww. She experienced a lot of embarrassment and, and humiliation from an early age. Yeah. Although Anne and Nancy were growing up in a time that still had very defined gender roles, they tended to like, quote unquote, boy things. Hmm. They played in the woods, they rode their bikes, and would go home only when they heard their mom calling. Yeah. I used to do that. I used to. Same with me. Play in yeah. the woods, ride my bike, and my mom would whistle. That's how we would know when to come home. Yeah. And if we couldn't hear her whistle, we've gone too far. Mm. <laughs> Dotes drank to deal with his memories of the war, and as time went on, he did drink more. Lynn, the oldest daughter, as a teenager, would get into arguments with her mother, yelling and throwing things. Lynn was the rebellious one, which actually left Anne and Nancy more freedom, since they think that their mom was just kind of tired after dealing with Lynn. Makes sense. Yeah. That's about as dramatic as the family dynamics get. The family remained close and even eventually lived in houses on the same property that Nancy would buy all of them. Wow. Yeah. That's cool. There was a lot of pressure on military wives to hold everything together, but their mom really seemed to keep it together despite sometimes having to leave the house in anger or, you know, one time she was so mad, I think, she left, she was in her car and she wasn't paying attention to where she was driving and all of a sudden she found herself kind of in between two cars on a railroad track oh my goodness and the back of her car got struck by a train oh. she was fine but oh. they could actually say like yeah mom got hit by a train <laughs> and she just like leave the house feeling frustrated and uh, i think you know the drinking wasn't you know great for their father's health but he mostly just yeah. kind of internalized yeah. stuff and it didn't seem to really externalize or play too much of a significant issue on the family's yeah, I, I, I entire well-being, right? I get you, yeah. It's like you would maybe expect that because that's usually what happens with these kinds of stories. Yeah. But I think it mostly just it affected him and... Yeah. That's good, I guess, in a way. Yeah, I mean, it's... Anne will take after her father as well in another way, mm. and we'll get to that. Um, but yeah, she definitely was more like, like dotes. Yes. Aww. Anne and Nancy went to a school that encouraged the arts. Ah, oh, I remember those days when schools encouraged the arts. <laughs> Anne began playing the flute. While this was great for her, her weight debilitated her self-confidence and she developed a stutter. Oh, yeah. 
like Carly Simon. There's kind of a few parallels here. A f- musical family, three sisters. Yeah, true. <laughs> yeah. She was pulled out of regular classes to attend speech classes, and this humiliated her further. Uh. Anne was inspired by Marlon Brando's performance in Mutiny on the Bounty in 1962, as well as her parents' albums A Star is Born and West Side Story. These allowed her imagination to run wild, it took her away from her stuttering, and she actually explains how singing helped her stutter. So I know that um, Carly Simon said the same thing, right? Yeah. That singing really helped her stutter, but she didn't quite explain it as well as Anne does. We had always been an army unto ourselves. With my socially unacceptable stutter, I spent more time than ever with my sisters, inside the family cocoon, oftentimes singing. Music and singing with my sisters became a huge part of my life. The only time I didn't stutter was when I sang. No one could understand why back then, but now, decades later, I think I can explain it. I believe that because of the uninterrupted airflow that happened during singing, my brain no longer controlled my voice and my body took over. Singing used a different part of the brain from talking, a part that wasn't encased in fear. Singing meant an escape from stuttering, and it became one of the few places where I was free. I sang more and more. It was my solace, my escape, my sanctuary. It became the only place I could be me. Wow. And what a voice, too. What a voice. Oh, my God. Anne was getting almost perfect grades, loved listening to the radio, read teen magazines and dreamed about boys. She tells some pretty sad stories in the book about getting less Valentine's Day cards than other students. And some of the cards that she did get had images of hippos. Oh, my God. Mm -hmm. You know, going to dances only to not be asked to dance at all. Like, really heartbreaking stuff. Oh. Anne and Nancy were very into bands like the Shirelles, the Supremes, and Little Richard. But of course, in 1964, a band would come along that would totally rock them and inspire them to become musicians. Zeppelin? 1964. Oh, sorry. 1964. Hmm. I guess the Beatles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the Beatles. We will talk about uh, Led Zeppelin in a little bit. Nancy says that it was like a lightning bolt came out of the heavens and struck us. Anne was 13, Nancy was 10, and their lives would never be the same. They, like many other people, came across the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show. After seeing them on the show, the Beatles became everything to the Wilson sisters. Of course. Of course. They didn't just fall in love with the Beatles. They fell in love with Great Britain, rock and roll, and themselves in a way. Beautiful. The Beatles became the thing they talked about constantly at school as well as at home. Of course. One thing that set them aside from their girlfriends, though, was that when their friends were playing Which Beatle Girlfriend Are You? Anne and Nancy were pre- pretending to be the Beatles. Yes! I love it. They say that although there were amazing female singers like Aretha Franklin that they really admired, there were no female Beatles. Yeah. While Anne was being called names like Fatso at school, it made her retreat further into the safety of her home and Nancy. Yeah. And the Beatles. They became a home for her. This is also so common with rock and roll stars where a lot of them are nerds and introverts and that's how they become incredible musicians because they're going home and just 
practicing for hours and hours you know they're not out with all the other schoolmates like playing outside and partying and things like and that and hecking like, around exactly they're uh, honing their craft so yeah makes sense for Anne's 14th birthday she received a guitar as a gift from her grandmother Maudie Maudie died the following year and Anne never forgot her kindness Anne's parents bought Nancy a guitar not long after and they played incessantly together yeah. Later, Anne would be known as the sister who sang and Nancy the sister who played guitar. Mm-hmm. They played Beatles songs, folk songs, Aretha. For the first time, the girls didn't have to share a bedroom, but they were constantly together in Anne's <laughs> singing and playing music. Cool. They started performing for their parents' friends at the dinner parties that their mother would host. When A Hard Day's Night came out, the girls saw it right away. Of course. I mean, I'd see it right away, too. For sure. (laughs) Right? Everyone saw it right away, let's face it. They loved it so much that they wanted to see it again. So they hid under the seats at the movie theater, and when the second showing played, they watched it again. (laughs) In high school, Anne was the outcast, but with Nancy, she felt accepted, sharing jokes all the time and making music together. They called themselves The Viewpoints. Interesting. (laughs) They would have a few different names together, and then even Hart would have a couple of couple. different names before they came, became Hart. Yeah, I mean, you you have to. Yeah, I mean, for sure. Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers used to be Mudcrutch. Yeah. Let's not forget that. <laughs> Dotes retired from his service, but his PTSD would find him keeping a loaded pistol under his pillow and drinking as soon as he was finished work teaching at the high school because he became a high school teacher after his service. Mm. He loved teaching, and his family never seemed to want to take away his cups, as they called them. I suppose because he didn't take anything out on them, just yeah. themselves, didn't seem like a huge problem. And it's still like the 50s. Yeah. This also freed up, sorry, 60s now. This also freed up their mother who befriended her neighbors, found a church, got involved in the community, and since they knew that they would be staying. Hmm. The sisters bought houseplants for the first time. <laughs> in the summer of 1966, the Beatles would play at the Seattle Center Coliseum in August. Anne bought four tickets for $6. Wow. (laughs) Wow. She also entered a contest for a Seattle newspaper for teenagers to write an essay on why I like the Beatles. Thousands wrote in, and no surprise, she won. It was the first time her name or photo was in print. And I'll read you a part of her essay. Oh, that's so cool that she still has it. Yeah, did you ever do anything like that? Like enter contests for for writing and things like that? For sure, yeah. I can't say I won, though. (laughs) (laughs) so alongside the essay she won a revere magic eye movie camera nice yeah okay this is what she wrote they led us to a new way of looking acting thinking and moving to a new and sensitive way of expressing ourselves in music to freedom in conformity Hmm. yeah she said it wasn't the first thing i'd ever written about the beatles but it was the first thing that was ever attention published yeah yeah um, so that's the only thing she really shares about what, what she, she said about them. But considering she's like a young teenager. Yeah, that's pretty good. It's pretty profound, I think. Yes. So the girls went to the concert and the concert was amazing, but also difficult because they were trying to study everything the Beatles were doing, really trying to listen, but with the screaming, screaming. and the yeah. light bulbs, it was near impossible. And she said the sound was wretched. No wonder the two, uh, the Beatles hated touring, you know, like they weren't admired for their music it was just screaming girls going crazy having hysteria fits (laughs) august 25th for them 
would forever be known as B-Day or Beatles Day. Yeah. They met a girl from their school who was also at the concert named Sue Ennis, and this would be a blessing for Anne as she had a friend other than her sister, and Sue would go on to write music with the sisters for years. They would be lifelong friends. Oh, cool. Yeah, so Sue has something really interesting to say about what she calls blood harmony between the sisters and their singing voice. Oh, interesting. I like that term, blood harmony. Yeah, I know, and it's like... Probably like what the Bee Gees had and the Jackson 5, like, yeah, your family and your voice. They're similar Simon sisters, exactly. It works. Yes. The other two girls were good singers, but the Wilson sisters' harmonies freaked me out. They were pitch perfect, matching the original songs note for note. They had an intuitive way of knowing exactly when to start and stop, when to turn it on, when to lighten up. I don't think they ever had the discussion about how they would sing a song. They just fell into it. It was like blood harmony. So good. Mm-hmm. And yeah, when you're, you know, in your room doing it every day in the car singing, it makes sense that you just learn to work with each other without ever vocalizing it. It just happens. Natural. Yeah. I wasn't planning on reading this, but I see that I also highlighted it and I think it's good. In 1966, most schoolgirls in Bellevue accepted or even welcomed the fact that they were heading for a little college, perhaps, marriage, then mommyhood, and finally, whatever was required to support her husband's dreams. Anne seemed on an entirely different arc, and I couldn't understand where she got the confidence to claim that she was going to be a professional musician. Nice. She was right. Yeah, she was. So Sue never wanted to be apart from the Wilson sisters. (laughs) I wouldn't want to be either. (laughs) The Viewpoint's first show was at a folk festival in 1967. They went on to play the Sunset Drive in theater, their house, outdoor festivals, schools, and even the Seattle Auto Show. They even played in their church to their largest audience to date, but accidentally made some people angry who walked out of the church (laughs) because they sang a song with the word hell in it and then they thought it would be funny to sing Elvis's crying in the chapel (laughs) apparently it was only funny to them and you Uh, many people walked out but they still had a great time amazing Anne and Nancy grew their musicianship by taking lessons and learned how to play bass like Paul and both sisters took choir lessons from an excellent teacher who made them feel encouraged nice In high school, singing and playing with Anne had taken over Nancy's life. She didn't care to date and had few outside interests besides music. They were beginning to be defined as people. And again, as, you know, Anne as the one who sang and Nancy was the one playing the guitar. Finding their place. Yeah. Yeah. There are some pretty funny stories in the book about family dynamics, like when they would overhear their parents making love or the time they found the parents found the sisters smoking marijuana Mm -hmm. tried it themselves on their own and then wanted to smoke it with Anne and Nancy (laughs) love it concerts gave Anne confidence she saw her future saw it far beyond high school so high school was easier for her to get through because she could see a future outside of it with this makes sense for no apparent reason weight began to fall off of her She lost nearly 50 pounds. She didn't feel thin. She felt average. But as she said, average didn't stand out at that time either. Yeah. Her first interaction with a real rock star would be Cher in 1967. Oh, amazing. When the sisters played a festival on a small stage that Cher walked by. It was then that Anne really understood the skewed standard for women in the business. She says, 
Even decades later, I could recall her hair, her shimmering beauty, and her fragileness. But mostly, I could remember how skinny she was. Hmm. That's really interesting. At this time, the sisters changed their name to Rapunzel and made their music a bit more psychedelic. They played that festival where Sonny and Cher were the headliners, and the image of Cher being beautiful but broken stayed in Anne's mind. She realized, it was obvious, even to my youthful self, that she was a human trapped in the consequence of her fame, trapped inside a bubble. What I didn't know was, at the time, was that the reflection in that window, that limo window, the one of Cher, the woman behind the mirror, fresh from the stage, all dolled up, would one day be me. You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast. And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. But do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals? Because Rakuten shoppers do. With Rakuten, they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora, Nike, and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in. And getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. It's easy to use and based on a simple idea. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Do you like science fiction? I'm Carrie Bechet, and if you loved movies like Arrival or Interstellar, then you're going to want to check out my podcast, Hypothetical. On Hypothetical, we tell speculative sci-fi stories interwoven with real science. New episodes every Tuesday, available wherever you get podcasts. Hmm. Wow. It, yeah. It was Dotes who picked them up from the festival, and you might think that parents back in 1967 wouldn't want their teenage daughters pursuing a career in music. But this just goes to show how supportive their parents were. Their number one fan. <laughs> and it was really nice to read about the many teachers who had a profound and positive effect on the Wilsons. That's good that they had so many supportive people around them. Yeah. Anne require, recalls a choir teacher who taught her how to breathe while singing. After that, her voice soared. Choir also provided opportunity to travel, and since their mother organized the Euro trip to Norway, Sweden, Holland, and Germany, 14-year-old Nancy was allowed to take along as well. Cool. Anne began dating a boy and occasionally dropped LSD. She was with Don, that was his name, and she first heard Led Zeppelin at a party. Yes. It was a revelation. Yeah, it was. Although she enjoyed her makeout sessions and heavy pettings, she never went all the way with Dawn. It was her music that consumed her. And playing with the Connies, which was her girl group with her sister yeah. and two other girls, that was her main thing. Anne finished high school just as Nancy began it. Their oldest sister, Lynn, had moved back to Bellevue and started a commune with her husband. Oh. The girl would visit often and put on shows. This is around the time they really began writing their own songs. Anne was channeling Paul Simon, Joni Mitchell. And in 1970, when Elton John's record came out, Nancy was, like, floored. Yeah. Anne recorded her first few songs with some guys and named themselves A Boy and His Dog. That's the name of the band. Interesting. Yeah. Like, keep trying. <laughs> they landed a regular gig at a tavern and played to good crowds. She tried to get a regular job at KFC, but promptly quit and has never had another job since outside of playing music. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. 
One of Anne's bands that would eventually become Heart first called themselves Hocus Pocus. Oh, I like that name. Anne was touring with five young men, and she got a real education on the road with them. (laughs) I bet. She talks about facing sexism during this time, being the only woman, with the familiar stories of men trying to get into hotel room at night, cat calls, hoots, pinches, sexual slurs. Oh, yeah. Yeah. She was an entirely different person in 1970 when there weren't many women on the stage other than to, you yeah. know, bring a beer across it for a patron, you know. Sometimes even club owners would try and tell her, oh, you would do better if you sang this way or if you wore these songs <sighs> or if you wore these clothes and sang these songs. Yeah. Like, gross. Wow. It was at this time that a very important person would enter into Anne's life. Who was that? I'll tell you. (laughs) So one of her bandmates, Roger, had a brother named Michael who had dodged the draft by fleeing to Canada. Apparently, he had a lot of ideas about the band and Roger wanted them all to meet. It was 1971. Anne was 21 years old. And one day when they were rehearsing, Michael snuck across the border to see this band. She says, he was tall, handsome and had piercing eyes. We locked eyes. It was one of those eye locks that happen once in a lifetime. It was long, unafraid, and neither of us looked away for what seemed like minutes. No words were exchanged. It was just eye on eye. I was never the same again. Michael Fisher had escaped to Canada almost two years before to avoid the draft. He was smart, deep, and spiritual. He felt a bond too. Nothing consumed Anne like Michael did. She said she had to be with him. Michael says this about Anne. The more I got to know her, the more perfect it was, the better it got. She was stunningly beautiful. The most beautiful part, though, was who she was. She was open. She was like a book ready to be read. Wow. Anne quit Hocus Pocus and went to live with Michael in Vancouver. My goodness. He lived in like a token style house a real zen place that's where she learned about sexuality and sensuality it was romantic it was a retreat from the rest of the world as was everything about michael is he the magic man he is (laughs) and you know she was in vancouver and her mom was worried and her mom would call her yes exactly she says For the better part of a year, I was completely lost in the world of Michael Fisher. My mother became increasingly concerned that her daughter was, literally and metaphorically, in another country, and she'd call to ask me to move back home. I kept telling her how wonderful Michael was and how true our love, but Mama wouldn't have any of it. In my notebooks, I began to craft a poem about those phone calls with my mother that would eventually transform into a song. The words were straight from my life, but, you know, we can't do it justice, can we? Oh, no. So, let's play a clip from Hearts, Magic Man.
decided to give it a go in Canada, and so the band moved down to try to be the best rock band in the country. Okay, it's like, sure, give that a try. Michael Fisher became their manager. Clubs were asking them to play disco hits, but they snuck in originals. Nancy was 17 and began applying to colleges. She considered auto mechanic, but was told when applying that they weren't accepting women. Of course. She began to look for other musicians to play with since Anne was with Hocus Pocus in Vancouver. She found a bandmate and a romantic partner with a boy named Jeff. She graduated high school in 1972 and went to visit Anne in Vancouver. She tried and failed to find Joni Mitchell's house, and it would always be a dream to meet her. A dream that would eventually come true years later. Yes. So for those people who are like, like true crime podcasts and who consider themselves a murderino, you're going to like this next part because Nancy got herself into quite a predicament one day when she was hitchhiking. It oh. was just like, I had to, I had to tell you, it's insane. Okay. okay, so Nancy is hitchhiking, just trying to find Joni Mitchell's house and she's picked up by a man. Yes. Right? No big deal back in that time. That's yeah. Like, but when he was supposed to turn right, he turned left. No. And when she said, oh, you're going the wrong way, he drove into a field. And as we know, when this happens many times, it's over. It's over. Yeah. So... <laughs> Nancy began to do what she had been taught to do, which is pull rank, spouting gibberish to scare the man. Yeah. She she said things like, my father is Major General John Bushel Winston of the United States Marine Corps, and he's expecting us to embark, and if we don't arrive by, oh, 900 hours, and so on. (laughs) Yeah. Look, it worked. Oh, thank God. And he left her in the field and drove off. Thank God. She is so lucky. She never hitchhiked again. I wouldn't either. Holy crap. Wow. That could have gone so differently. Oh, God. Wow. Anne's poetry morphed into songwriting, and Michael continued to be her muse. Although there were bumps in the road, he watched what she ate and she drank, and she still loved him, and began to write a song about him that summed up what being in love meant to her. So we're going to read about another inspiration. Our initial mad passion couldn't be sustained without bumps in the road, of course. I loved him entirely and deeply, yet I was too young to be that devoted. The first year I was lost in love, but eventually my real self returned, and I saw parts of Michael that were a bit too Henry Higgins for me, straight out of My Fair Lady. Still. I remained undeniably crazy about Michael Fisher. I began to write a song that year that summed up what being in love had done to me. The words were straight out of the scenes of the wild sexuality that went on in our cottage, but they were also about how love had opened up parts of me. Here, heretofore unknown, my own liberation. I know this song. That song is called Crazy Crazy on You. So let's listen to a little bit of that now. Here's Crazy on You by Heart.
goodness, thank God she met this man. These songs are just so incredible. I know. And she's so dead on with like the feeling, you know? I've felt that before. I know. It's the kind of song that sends shivers up your spine. Yes. Yes. The name of the band would change one more time. And this time it stuck. Heart. Heart. Things started to shift for Heart when they were offered a gig opening for Rod Stewart in Montreal. They traveled there from Calgary uh, by train. And so this is a long trip. We're going from the west coast of Canada to, I guess, towards middle. Yeah. Um, It's a long train ride. And they jammed all the way. They played music all the way. The crowd in Montreal gave them a warm reception and even knew their songs because their albums had gotten some airplay in Canada. Anne remembers introducing a song at the forum, saying in her best French, her best French uh, accent, "Cette chanson s'appelle Le Magique." So <laughs> the song is called "Magic Man." Everyone in the crowd sang along, and Anne says it was the one city in the world. It was only one city in the world, but for the first time, we were stars. That's so cool. They share a funny story about how one time they were playing in Vancouver, and as they were covering "Stairway to Heaven," John Bonham, Robert Plant, and Jimmy Page slinked in and went to a private room. Oh my God, yeah. can you imagine? They didn't seem to pay much attention, but this wouldn't be the last time that they sang that song in their presence. Yeah. And then the other time is obviously much more powerful. And, uh, oh. Yeah. It's like, have you have you seen it? Um, it's their performance where they're doing Stairway to Heaven and uh, the guys had just been honored at the... Yeah. Yeah, and like... <laughs> Jimmy Page can't sit still. He's like looking at all of the guys being like, can you believe this? And Robert Plant is like crying. I've seen her twice and both times they did a Zeppelin cover. Oh, nice. Yeah. Well, they would later get compared to Zeppelin with tits. Of course. Is how they would be called. Of course. <laughs> oh, So the band moved into the big house in front of, into a big house in front of Anne and Michael's little cabin, and the band would become like a commune. Since Anne was the only woman in the band, she was still expected to clean up after everyone. Um, the guys in the bands had wives and girlfriends who lived there as well, and when they came off tour, they would ask Anne what happened and if the guys were faithful. She uh. had to decide if she would tell the truth or live by the code of the road. Did she... Which one did she choose? She always chose to protect the guys as best as she could. Yeah. They began to make money, money which went back into improving the band's gear, things of that nature. Nancy eventually dropped out of college in Oregon to join the band and had always wanted this. At first, Nancy tried to make a go of it in college, getting other people to play with her, auditioning people who she called sheer bullshit trash. <laughs> she was looking for her person. Yeah. Well, so was Anne. And it turned out it was of one another. Of course. Since Nancy loved the acoustic guitar, she asked Anne if they could include more of that. Anne said, of course. That's what she always had hoped. So the dynamic shift in the band, and they were very powerful together. Like, can you imagine that? Just being, like, invited by your sister. Yeah. It's crazy it took that long. Yeah. Uh, they made an album together, which would become Dreamboat Annie. Yeah. There's this wild story about their car getting hit by a moose in British Columbia. So now this is like, you know how Nancy had had kind of a close call? Now yeah. Anne has her close call. 
The people in the backseat noticed the northern lights, so like the so to see the aurora borealis better, and moved from the passenger seat to the back. Just as she did that, a huge moose hit the car and caved in that entire side of the car. Wow. So had Anne been there only seconds earlier, yeah, there never would have been a heart. That sort of happened to me in Edmonton when I was a kid with a deer. Really? Yeah, it was terrifying. It was so scary i can't even tell you but yeah went through the windshield my brothers hit a bear he yeah he totaled our car our tracker that we had i think it was a moose he never got hurt but the cars were uh write-offs yeah you know, when you can't yeah. drive oh, them yeah. anymore they were write-offs welcome to canada Canadian living <laughs> yeah Dreamboat Annie came out in 1975. Crazy on You was a single, and it turned out that the U.S. was a tough nut to crack. Mm -hmm. After the Rod Stewart tour, they did a month with ZZ Top, which brought more exposure. They had more success in the border cities because they also played the Canadian albums. Makes sense. The industry was so corrupt. When they went to radio stations afterwards, they were told, like, go wait in the car, while their Uh, promoter gave the DJs cocaine and phone numbers of sex workers to get their songs played. Like, that's just one example. Yep. They couldn't play too much in the States because if Michael was caught, he'd go to jail. Oh, yeah. Luckily, Dotes wrote a letter on Michael's behalf. And with a few other reasons, Michael's case was settled without jail time. And they ended up being free to play the States. And Michael could cross the border legally again. Damn, he's lucky. Yeah. Once Dreamboat Annie hit the U.S. charts, it stayed there for two years. Oh, so cool. Their songs touched a nerve and it was good timing. Everyone was ready for the female voices in music at the moment that they were coming up. Yeah, they were. Yeah. There should have been more of them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just as the album was becoming a hit, Nancy began dating a member of Heart, Roger, Michael's brother. Yeah. It was like Fleetwood Mac to the max, although it was sisters dating brothers. That's so crazy. This did help their onstage dynamic. Roger gave Nancy a sexual education. <laughs> and it actually took away a lot of the sexual advances from other people to Nancy since she was clearly with someone now. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. So, and then of course, you know, like magazines and tabloids, they love that stuff. Oh, yeah. It's a band, you know, and with the manager and yep. members, sisters dating brothers. Yep. In 1976, they were on tour opening for the Beach Boys. Oh, cool. This was a high but a significant low was when their promoter bought an entire page in Rolling Stone. And you're probably thinking like, wait, how is that a bad thing? Oh, no. But beside the photo of Dreamboat Annie, there was the title. Hearts, Wilson Sisters Confess. It was only our first time. Insinuating that Anne and Nancy were incestuous lesbian <sighs> lovers. Oh, my God. What the fuck, man? What? Well, obviously, they were pissed. Yeah. Yeah. And the guy was like, well, you know, it's like all press is good. Uh-huh. Anyways, like for a while and like for a long time, they would just be like approached by the grossest men at gigs. I bet. So one of the disgusting men that they met, <laughs> what a man that called himself Tony. Oh. Who was like asking them. Already disgusted. <laughs> he like asked Anne, where's your lover? She's like, oh, Michael, I don't know, he's over there. No, your lover, your sister. And then uh-huh. sh- showing Anne his watch that, you know, when you move it a certain way, it shows a woman whose clothes came off. Oh, so sleazy. So Tony's essence would stick with her. <laughs> so much so that she was inspired to write another hit song. Love it. Yeah. 
<laughs> She's like, the radio promo guys were so archetypal. There were movie characters based on them. Mm. I left the venue and went back to the hotel. I sat down with pen and paper and started writing a song. No song is completely about one person, but what later came to be known as Barracuda was not just about Tony, it was about a million Tonys, some in the record industry and some outside it. It was about how this thing we thought about art was, when mixed with sexuality marketing, just a sleazy commodity. It went in part, you lying so low in the weeds, I bet you're gonna ambush me. You'd have me down, 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 down on my knees, wouldn't you, Barracuda? Yes. So good. So let's listen to some of Barracuda. Hey, I love that song. That song would actually have another um, huge resurgence later on when uh, Sarah Palin used it in her campaign without permission and they were so pissed and they were like um actually a lot of that is what we were rebelling against but then it brought more light again to all of the issues that they were facing in the music industry at that time and all of those really predatory people and yeah i had no idea she used that yeah that's so funny i know there was a shift in record labels and in 1977 they switched their record labels and released an album little queen this would sell over three million copies and have such songs as barracuda kick it out and killer queen they had pretty amazing fashion sense their day looks were their stage looks and if they walked down the street together it was obvious they were a band yeah. If they didn't make their garments, they bought it off the rack and doctored it. Like the time Anne bought a bathrobe that she sewed rhinestones on, which she wore with tights and knee-high boots. Oh, love it. In 1977, they were on the cover of Rolling Stone for the first time. Amazing. It was just Anne and Nancy, though, on the cover, mm. which would become a theme. Yep. They tried to be inclusive, but even during interview time, the guys preferred to stay back, you know, sit in the sun at the hotel. Well, it's good that they, like, that was a choice for them. Yeah. Anne and Nancy would retreat with Sue Ennis to Oregon Coast um, to write for the band. While it was great to be on the cover of Rolling Stone, it was very much still full of sexuality, questions about gender, with very little emphasis on music. The cover headline was Natural Fantasies, Natural Acts. Uh, And the article talked about sexual fantasies on stage. Go figure. Yeah, of course it did. One writer asked how much to the nearest $10,000 they would ask to pose nude for him. Oh, my God. Or if they date him, (laughs) they declined both, obviously. Yeah. In a few years' time, the Wilson sisters had bought their parents a home on Lake Washington. They said goodbye to their last family home, which, well, was like their first family home, which felt, you know, bittersweet, of course. Anne went to her 10-year high school reunion. I mean, we want it to be like redemption, right? Yeah. We want it to be this like, yeah. you know, so yeah, she shows up and the people that used to Make fun tease of her. her, asking her for autographs, 
pretending like they used to be nice to her and old demons surfaced for Anne and instead of having like a redemptive moment like we would hope yeah she ended up just wanting to escape just like her high school days except this time when she escaped it was in a limo nice tours were getting bigger they ditched their tour bus for a private jet it sounds luxurious and in a way it was but this meant more people demanded more things from them including their time and energy Mm. They brought their dogs on tour on the planes, um, but the guys in the band said they were afraid to fly at night, but really it seemed like they wanted to stay in the city overnight so that they could hook up with women. Of course. Not really a luxury that, you know, Anne and Nancy would ever really experience. Yep. They would tour with some southern rock bands like the Marshall Tucker Band, who were repeatedly sexist and would pull the plug during their sets out of jealousy. Oh, what assholes. Leonard Skinner were also sexist, but were more mellow. Uh, one time, because they were the only women on the tour, the drummer of that band dropped off his young son to their hotel room being like, can you take care of him for a few hours? And like didn't show up until the next morning. Wow. But there was a pleasant experience on tour and it was with Queen. Oh, cool. Yes. So they were, uh, they opened for Queen in, in Europe. Yeah. So Anne says, They were the ultimate English gentlemen and quite a contrast to the southern yahoos. After one show in Edinburgh, they invited us for dinner at a fancy restaurant that was off an alley near Edinburgh Castle. It had no sign out front. You just had to know what ancient wooden door to knock on. It felt like it had been there for 5,000 years. We sat down at a long table covered with fine champagnes, including a rare pink Dom Perignon Perignon, and many delicious dishes. Brian May was sweet on Nancy and spent the whole night chatting her up. In the middle of the dinner, down the candlelit table in his ancient brick cavern, in this ancient brick cavern, came the booming voice of Freddie Mercury. Anne! Oh, Anne! (laughs) Freddie bellowed in his unmistakable voice. It sounded so odd to hear my name spoken by one of the true greats in rock. The rest of the table stopped talking and there was silence. Anne! Freddie said. Who is the real magic man? (laughs) It's me, isn't it? (laughs) You meant me, didn't you, Anne? (laughs) I love it. (laughs) After the huge success of Little Queen, the pressure was on for a third album. Third albums are like notoriously the most difficult, right? Yeah. With Sue, the girls crafted the song Minstrel Wind, which would go on to become one of their favorites as well as a fan favorite. Apparently, the song can literally change the weather and it did when they performed live so we're gonna say if you want to listen to it you can go listen to it at your own risk and look outside and watch the weather change because right now everything seems pretty calm you know we don't want to start anything we don't want to start a hurricane yeah so you can go ahead and listen to uh, minstrel wind on your own the album would become dog and butterfly released in 1978 It sold a million albums its first month, stayed on the charts for the better part of the year, and would go on to be a triple platinum album and their fourth multi-million seller in a row. Cool. It gave them some of their strongest notices and a great Rolling Stone review. Wait, is this their third? Yeah, okay. In 1979, Dotes suffered a stroke, and during a time when their parents would have been enjoying their retirement and one another, Lou became a caregiver and Dotes remained in a wheelchair. Oh. Yeah. Anne and Nancy would attend clubs like Studio 54, where they met a very drunk Liza Minnelli. Amazing. They attended Elton John's birthday party. 
dream of mine. And all of the things that would come along with being a rock star at this time, including drugs and alcohol. Yeah. So even Anne and Nancy Wilson weren't, of course, you know, of a, course, aside and a part of doing all of these things. Yeah. And so after all of these successes, after all of these albums, the touring heart was kind of falling apart a little bit. Hmm. Roger was kicked out of the band, and Nancy considered taking lead guitar, although she loved rhythm. She says that rhythm guitar is what other guitarist players notice, but few listeners do. But 1979 was when Nancy and Anne really came into their power. With Roger gone, Michael's power over the band waned. Interesting. Their next album, Bibi Lestrange, came out to good reviews, considering that one of the same publications once called them Cock Rock Without the Cock. They were going to be on the cover of Rolling Stone once more, this time with Annie Leibovitz photographing. Oh, so cool. Mm, Unfortunately, it wasn't the glorious meeting of genius female minds that we would hope, and Anne felt pressured by Annie to remove her top for the beach photo shoot. Oh, wow. I was not expecting that. She was really tired by the end of it and eventually was just like, oh, fine. Yeah. But Anne wasn't happy with this. Yeah. And then she wanted the film destroyed. Annie refused. So the photos are in a safety deposit lock to this day. Wow. Which, like, Anne has lost the keys to. But if you look at the cover of that album, you can, like, tell that, you know, like, we see the shoulders. It's kind of a recreation of Dream About Annie. But, like... I see. Yeah, it's, like, weird. Okay. Hmm. Who... I don't know. It's hard to explain. Like, why would Annie pressure her? You know, maybe Annie was just thinking, like, well, she's, like, you know, I'm a woman and she can be comfortable with me and I just know this is going to be a great show. Yeah, she probably had an artistic idea of what Mm -hmm. she wanted and maybe she just wasn't equipped at the time to understand that. I mean, I don't want to make excuses for it, but who knows what she was thinking. Anne bought a house in Seattle and Nancy bought a farm not too far away where the remainder of the family would move into different parts of the property. Neither of them had much time to enjoy their homes because they were touring again. On this tour, they met Mick Jagger, who had actually asked to meet them. I was wondering if he would pop up in there. Yeah. So they were like, you're great. And he was like, no, you're great. (laughs) And apparently Keith Richards was like missing until minutes before he went on stage. Hmm. 1981 brought another album, Private Audition. And unfortunately, this wouldn't do so well. Yeah. It came out in 1982 and sold only 400,000 copies. Nancy was single and would be hit on by the Eagles, Don Henley and Glenn Fry, and even Elton John's writing partner, Bernie Taupin. Nice. But it would be a young writer that caught her attention. Yes. So I forgot. No way. About this until I started reading it. And I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> actually talked about this. Yes. She was introduced to Cameron Crowe. Yes. She didn't get much of a first impression and said he seemed a little pale and pasty as if he had been <laughs> indoors writing for months. He probably was. She saw him again and found him charming and funny. He was the younger starving artist and she was the rich rock star. Yes, I love it. I How's love it so much. That for a dynamic. Yeah, so good. He was 24 at the time and was a whiz kid. They fell in love. She did a walk-on on Fast Times at Richmond High. I need to rewatch that. And began collaborating with him by doing much of the music of his soundtracks. Yep. And this lasted over years with his movies. Yep. As Anne and Nancy were getting older, the critics did not go easy on Anne. She felt continually judged. Of course. If she gained any weight, people would take notice, yep. and they would put it in a nasty way in print. I loved the dynamic between them and how they did look different, but you could still tell they were sisters. But like, I loved 
the like light and dark and I don't know they work so well together it's like yin and yin and yin and yang yeah you know but it's wild because even the YouTube videos that I would watch you scroll down into the comments people are like people commenting let's use the hot one yeah it's so disappointing or just yeah like comments from men just talking about their looks and their sexuality and all i like but i don't know but then again like i don't know it's just crazy because what does it matter like look like hear that voice and like the talent that they have why why aren't you talking about that you know it's crazy i just want me i just want to make sure i'm like not being a hypocrite because like i drool over guys too you know i drool over musicians so yeah but you're not commenting like on someone's weight or saying negative things putting negative comments out yeah Although the band had casual relationships on the road, Anne could not do the same. The one time she let down her guard and took someone home after a gig, in the morning she caught him calling a local radio station, telling them <laughs> that he had just had sex with Anne Wilson of Heart. Oh my god. Humiliated, she kicked him out of the room. Oh my god. The 80s continued to bring cocaine, a commercial for coffee, and bad music videos. Mm. In 1984, they saw This Is Spinal Tap and thought, Ouch! <laughs> Great film, by the way. (laughs) Although they seemed on a downward spiral, the second half of their career was actually about to begin. They began to sing songs that had already been written, right? Somebody else. And began getting hits again with songs like What About Love and These Dreams. The ballads. So I've always known these songs. I just didn't know it was by then. Really? Yes. Yeah. And so they decided to call this next album Heart. And since they had never used their name as an album cover. Yeah. Or as an album name, they did. And Jimmy Page came to a listening party. And it became their biggest album ever. Yeah, people loved the ballads. Yes. Okay, so I thought I would give you the option. Should we play a little bit of What About Love or These Dreams? What are you feeling? I feel like we gotta do What About Love. All right, let's play it. So here's a little bit of What About Love. You've been Okay, it probably seems now after all of these albums, all of these touring, we're into the 80s. That like, Anne and Nancy are like getting older. No, Anne was only 35 and Nancy was 31. Like, Nancy is my age. And, yeah, you know, ah, It's crazy. Back at home, their mom Lou kept busy answering their fan mail. Oh, that's so cute. In 1986, their tour seemed to never end, and they played 148 gigs, plus interviews, plus video shoots. Their fame was so huge at this point that paparazzi followed them, and they really felt confined to their hotel. Anne was starting to understand what it was like mm-hmm. when she saw Cher yeah. so many years ago. She says, 
I thought fame would make my life bigger. Mm. Instead, it had shrunk my world. Yeah, that's so common in all of our episodes when we talk about when they reach a certain level. Yeah. They eventually found some peace and anonymity in the moors of Scotland. Nancy and Cameron were married in 1987 and would go on to have two sons together. All in all, they were married for 27 years. That's a great haul. When their marriage broke up, she says that they actually became better friends and better co-parents. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, one thing, and I think I've even mentioned this before here that Dan Savage says that I love is just because a relationship ended doesn't mean it was unsuccessful. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Drugs and alcohol were still a big part of Anne's touring life. And let's just say Stevie Nicks became her best friend that year. (laughs) But she still couldn't couldn't keep up with Stevie. (laughs) So this started giving Anne panic attacks on stage. Eventually, Nancy and Sue brought Anne to Hawaii where she got off the party. They were like, Anne, you have to get off the party. And she kind of started sorting it out. Mm. It was like a mini intervention and it worked. Anne stopped doing cocaine. And drugs, although alcohol was still in her life for a little while longer. Hmm. Anne opened her home over the years to many aspiring musicians, some who hit huge, like Mother Love Bone. Oh, oh my goodness, really? Yeah. Awesome. Yep. So they would become? Soundgarden. Right. This is your domain. I'm like, Pearl Jam? And like, oh, well, they also like Temple of the Dog. The Every there's multiple members in different. They're the Seattle grunge. They were people. hanging out at her house. Chris Cornell hung out there, yeah. as did the guys in Allison Chains. Yeah, in see, ni- that's where they all kind of trickled into. Yeah, yeah. In 1990, Anne celebrated her 40th birthday. Around this time, she decided to adopt a baby. She was ready and had always wanted to be a mother, but she couldn't have children of her own. She became a mother to a little girl who became her muse, and she wrote songs for her. A few years later, she would adopt a son. She wanted to be healthier for her children, and they made her think about someone other than herself, as she says, you know, it, ex- it ended her extended adolescence. And a lot of the times being a musician, we know it gives you an extended adolescence. Oh, yeah. So they decided to start making music for fun again, and they called themselves the Love Mongers. Chris Cornell sang with them. Sean Lennon, Joey Ramone went to see them play. Oh, my goodness. In 1993 in Seattle, they didn't have the attention of people who, you know, really were wanting to listen to grunge. So they hired John Paul Jones and he produced a live album for them. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. And uh, they toured and they actually got very close to John Paul Jones. Cool. Nancy decided to take some time off and continued to work on film scores with Cameron while they planned their family. She was enjoying a new creative partnership. Yeah. It was through Cameron that Nancy finally met Joni Mitchell. She said that she couldn't have been a cooler cat. And it was one of those rare instances when a hero actually goes beyond your expectations. Oh, that's that's the best. Anne got to meet her hero, Paul McCartney, when Nancy introduced them before one of his shows because she met him through Cameron who asked Paul to do a song for Vanilla Sky. She said it was short and she really just shook his hand and said hello, Yeah, you know. So I'm going to read you a little bit about Nancy's involvement with Almost Famous because I have a feeling that some of our listeners are probably a fan of uh, Almost Famous. Oh, yeah. So curious to know about um, Nancy's involvement. Yes. When I wasn't touring, I was working with Cameron on Almost Famous. I loved every one of Cameron's movies, but Almost Famous is my favorite because it told both our stories in a way. 
he being the youngest journalist in rock, and me being the youngest member of a band. Kate Hudson and I became friends during the shoot, and we would sneak off set for a cigarette together. (laughs) She was a really square girl and was always grilling me for stories on wild rock guys or drugs and parties. I didn't have much to offer, but I think she wanted to absorb what she imagined was my wildness for her role as Penny Lane. I told her she reminded me of the silent film actress Clara Bow. So Kate got a dog and named it Clara Clara Bow. They actually named one of their sons after the character William Miller. So they named their son Billy. Aww. Yeah. As their career evolved, they noticed how often other prominent musicians told them how much of an influence they had on their career. To them, it was the ultimate compliment. Even Celine Dion was late to her own concert, talking to the sisters one night before her show. Wow. Yeah, I mean... (laughs) Celine has made quite a comeback, hasn't she? Yeah. All right. So, this is what Anne says about... The, the women in music issue. Nancy and I have often been cited as women who broke through gender barriers in music in an era when few others did. We never took up that cause on purpose. It was accidental, or at best, the fate we were born to. We were naive, young, and unwilling to believe that we couldn't do something just because we were females. I know rock is better for women being in it, but it is a hard life for the female pioneers. Oh, yeah. Right. Very true. And recorded a solo album in 2007, and that's when she gave up drinking for good. Oh. She had spots on her liver, and she knew it was a matter of life or death. Well, that'll do it. Mm-hmm. They released Red Velvet Car in 2010 and became one of their first top 10 albums in 20 years. Like, they still had it. Them. They always will. Yeah. Nancy remarried and has become a grandmother. My goodness. In 2012, they were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. That same year, that's where they performed Stairway to Heaven for Led Zeppelin at the Kennedy Center Honor Show. So cool. In part of their Rock and Roll Hall of Fame speech, they say something that's really interesting. She gave a beautiful speech, talking about Nancy, about how when we were growing up, there were only four jobs available for women. Teachers, mothers, nurses, or waitresses. We became both musicians and mothers in an era when women normally did not rock and were not expected to be leaders, Nancy said. We're not finished rocking yet, she continued. We are looking straight into the face of the future and we say, turn it up. Yeah. When Nancy was done, I took the microphone. I had the wrong gender, looks, DNA, and hometown for music business success in the era we grew up in, I said. But aren't the sweetest parts of music always what's wrong? I got a chance to sing, to find my voice on stage, and I took it, and I still take it every night in front of every audience, and I will never, ever take it for granted. Oh, they're yeah. so inspiring. You should, like, 100%, everybody should go and watch it on YouTube. Absolutely. And the performance that they do after, it's just amazing. Yeah. Oh, okay. An incredible band. So let's just finish off here about what they say music means to them. The bond between Nancy and me grows deeper each year. We are more experienced women and grown-up women and mothers. I am a grandmother. But at our core, we are what we have always been. Fanatics about love, art, truth, and the belief that we can do anything together we set our minds to. 
We write our own story, our own way. I remain a fanatic about music, about the power of love to heal, about heart. When I'm on stage, I look and I look over at my sister. I see not only a mature woman with a guitar, I see the child within Nancy and the child within me. I see us I see both of us on the floor with our heads propped up on our hands in front of a tiny black and white television watching the Beatles and imagining a future that at the time was beyond imagining for girls of our generation. But ultimately, I am more a fanatic of Nancy Wilson than anything else. I have always been and always will be. I need only look over at my sister on stage or off and know she is a fanatic of me. Oh my God, that's so beautiful and such a perfect way to end such an incredible story. Thank you so much for that. Oh my God, I learned so much. And these women are just kick ass. I think this is the best way to start 2020. Mm -hmm. You picked a killer one. Thank you. Well, I know you've had it on your Kindle, which I didn't know. So I kind of took that one from <laughs> you. Sorry. Uh, it was meant for you. So, okay, great. Yeah. Well, I hope that everybody else enjoyed it. If you are looking for some more rock and roll music, podcast head over to pantheon and you can listen to the amazing podcast that we have over there on our there's network there's so many on there now and we also know of many more that are about to come oh my god yes. that are exciting so you'll find that out soon yeah and uh yeah keep listening to us we are one month closer to uh our journey to la yes uh, so, so excited, excited. yeah and right. yeah, we got plenty in store for this year, so. That's true. Thank you for listening. We appreciate it. We'll see you next time. Keep rocking. Have you ever watched a futuristic sci-fi movie and wondered, but wait, could any of this really happen? And will I live long enough to see it? That's what our show Hypothetical is about. I'm Carrie Bechet, and on this podcast, we ask what-if questions about the future. Like, what if we could read minds? What if the world's digital data was erased all at once? What would happen if the Yellowstone supervolcano erupted? Then we explore that question two ways, through speculative science fiction and through dialogue with brilliant scientists. The result is a genre-bending narrative that's interwoven with real facts provided by literal geniuses. And, spoiler alert, a lot of the science fiction out there, it's not nearly as far-fetched as you might think. Come time travel with me into the future on Hypothetical. New episodes on Tuesdays available on all your favorite podcast apps. Just search Hypothetical. That's H-Y-P-E-R-T-H-E-T-I-C-A-L.